0: Galatians 3:10 through 14. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Thanks be to God for his holy word. I'm sure I've said this many times in many sermons, but there is one question that would summarize all of man's pursuits in this life. It would echo the question of two individuals in the New Testament, the rich young ruler and the Philippian jailer. They both asked, what must I? I do to inherit eternal life, which is just another way of saying what must I do to be saved, saved from death and what awaits us after death, which is the judgment of God, because to live for eternity is the desire of every man. But notice they both ask, what must I do? Is there truly a fountain of life that I can go take a dip in? Is there a good deed that I can perform? Do I have to obey the law? Uh, Jesus told the disciples after explaining the difficulty of entering eternal life, saying that with man it is impossible to inherit eternal life. Why? Why is it impossible? Because of sin. Sin pervades every corner and every inch of our fallen human nature. And sin cannot enter eternal life. Sin cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, One of the reasons why our sinful flesh must die in order to enter the kingdom. And completely be born again. When the Philippian jailer asked this question, Paul and Silas responded... Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In other words, there is nothing you can do to inherit eternal life, but believe in the one who has done something for you to inherit eternal life. So you can say there are two groups of people out there or two different religions. There are those who believe they can inherit eternal life by doing something. Whether it's good deeds or obeying God's laws. Then there are those who by God's grace recognize that there is nothing that they can do to inherit eternal life. But receive and rest in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, To make his point, Paul directly quotes four different Old Testament passages here. Uh, Although there are only five verses here, they are packed with meaning and much difficulty. So we will carefully consider each quotation in its Old Testament context to understand what Paul is saying. He has been defending the doctrine that one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so that means that the Gentiles did not have to receive circumcision or become Jews in order to be saved. So from the Old Testament, he is trying to teach the Galatians that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, are first, cursed under the law. Second, that there is only one way to be redeemed from that curse. And thirdly, how the righteous shall live by faith. Paul had just described how someone is to be considered a son of Abraham, which basically means that you share the same faith of Abraham. Because to be the son of Abraham is to be one spiritually. You don't have to be a Jew. It's not about your ethnicity, and it is not by the works of the law. You have to be someone of faith, specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way to stand righteous before God. Uh, this is how Paul describes a man of faith. He, he quotes Genesis 15:6 to say that Abraham, before he did any works of the law, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He believed the promise that out of Abraham's offspring... He would make Abraham the father of many nations, and this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see this every week when we come to church. And this means that Abraham relied on the promises of God. He did not rely on the works of the law. He did not rely on his own obedience to the law. So Paul continues to make this contrast between the man of faith, Versus the Judaizers and their doctrine. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So here Paul is going to make a contrast between those who rely on the promises of God and those who rely on the works of the law. But the age old question is, what does Paul mean by works of the law here? And what do those who rely on the works of the law expect to accomplish in God's sight by the works of the law? As we consider the four texts that Paul quotes, we'll get a better understanding of what Paul means here. Uh, Because many have misunderstood and limited the works of the law here as simply referring to the ceremonial law, specifically circumcision. So to them, Paul is only referring to anyone who relies on circumcision to be saved. But let us consider the context of the verse he quotes. He quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. The context of Deuteronomy 27 is God renewing his covenant with Israel right before they were to enter the promised land. And remember, not everyone entered the promised land, including Moses, due to disobedience. To secure the promised land, Israel was expected to obey the law. In Deuteronomy 27, the Lord, through Moses, pronounced covenant curses on anyone who disobeys, not the ceremonial law here, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So the works of the law here is not just limited to the ceremonial law, but he is speaking of the entire law of God found in the laws of Moses. Then Paul quotes verse 26 from the Greek as it translates, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now what does this mean? It means that anyone who seeks to be justified, who seeks to stand righteous before God by obedience to the law is under a curse. Why? Just like it says in Deuteronomy 27, the law requires complete and perfect obedience. You can't get away with saying, well, I'm generally obedient. I don't sin that much. I have my slip-ups. A little white lie here, a little white lie there. But doesn't all the good that I do count for something? No. Not in God's sight. Remember what James said, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, one little white lie, has become guilty of all of it. No one does that. I remember uh, Christian pastors who in the past have argued against atheists uh, by saying, if I find out that the Bible isn't true when I die, well, at least I can say I lived a good and moral life. How is that not relying on the works of the law? It's not relying on God's promises, It's relying on your own good and moral life. Now, did you live a good and moral life according to God's standards? I think not. That's relying on the law. That's like saying you have a backup plan. In case you're not saved by grace alone through faith alone. You're saying to yourself, just in case I'm not saved by grace, I'm going to keep the law as a backup plan. Paul is saying here, you have no backup plan. If you rely on the works of the law, you're under a curse. No one does that. Neither Jew nor Gentile. The Jews who received the law didn't do the law. That's why they were in exile. The Gentiles who never received the law, but knew the law in their hearts, didn't do the law. So if you rely on the works of the law, you're self-deceived and under a curse. Now that is not at all to say that the law is our enemy. That is not at all to say that the law is bad. Or that Christians should have no regard for the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. And all of mankind is bound to obey the law. But the law was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was to be a very clean mirror that exposes you to your true self, your true face. And when you see yourself in this mirror, you realize that you have nowhere to go. You're a sinner and you're under God's judgment. You can imagine The frantic reaction that this would cause because there is nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. You know you're going to be judged by God for everything you have done. All of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your deeds will be judged completely and exhaustively by God. He does not and cannot overlook sin. That would go against his nature. So you try to do some... Works, you try to do some penance, something to atone for all your sins, but nothing satisfies and all those sins are still counted to you. You did nothing and can't do anything to remove them. Just think of the mental strain and agony this would cause. The misery you endure when you realize this. This describes the experience of someone who is under a curse. It's like a horror movie uh, until you realize you have nowhere to run but to the one who has fulfilled the law and satisfied the terms for you on your behalf. So secondly, Paul was teaching them that the only way to be redeemed from the curse of the law He says, now it is evident that no one is justified. No one stands righteous before God by the law. Why is it evident? Because like I said, no one keeps the law. The law holds everyone captive under sin. In fact, Paul speaks of this as part of the mystery of salvation, how it was God's doing to consign all, Jews and Gentile, to disobedience, Romans 11.32. And he did this through the law because the law is a taskmaster. It's a slave master holding us captive. The law was a guardian until Christ came because when he came, he came to finally deliver us from the law's bondage. He completed the work of redemption. But even in the Christian's experience, we cannot look at the law and say to ourselves, yep, I got this all down Numbers 1 through 10. I checked them all off. <laughs> we are not counted righteous by how well we keep the law. Rather, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's Paul's second Old Testament quote. He quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. In its original context, Habakkuk made a complaint about Judah's disobedience. They vowed to obey the law, but they failed. This would be the pattern of God's people. God's people repeated Adam's sin over and over again. And so the Lord's response was that he was going to send the Chaldeans to conquer them as a form of judgment. Then guess what? Habakkuk complains again. How it was unjust for the wicked, that is the Chaldeans, to punish the righteous. Or rather the tad bit less uh, wicked Judah. These are the same guys he just complained about who disobeyed the law. Now he comes to their defense. So the Lord responded that he would judge both nations, Judah and the Chaldeans. But the Lord also revealed the way back for God's people when he said, the righteous shall live by faith. He was telling Habakkuk that he needed to trust in the promises of God and that God's people would be restored one day, that they will be saved from all their sins and they would be forgiven. That God will preserve a remnant among Israel, even when everything seems hopeless and dark. And here comes the contrast. In verse 12, "But the law is not of faith. Let, let me remind you of what Paul wanted to make clear to us earlier, was that all those who rely on the works of the law, or all those who are of the law, are not those who are of faith, like Abraham, who relied on the promises of God. So those who rely on the works of the law are not the same who the, uh, as those who have faith in the promises of God and Jesus Christ. He says, but the law is not of faith. He is making a total contrast between the law and faith. He was saying that salvation was not through obedience to the law, but only through faith in Christ. And so to prove his point, he quotes a third Old Testament text. He quotes Leviticus 18 verse 5. The one who does them, that is the law, in the context of Leviticus, uh, once again it is the moral law, not just the ceremonial law. The one who does them, the law, shall live by them. Here you'll notice the contrast. He is contrasting between the righteous in Christ and the so called ceremonial law keeping Judaizers. But this can also apply to those who think they will stand righteous before God and inherit eternal life by keeping the moral law. They are under a curse because they can never keep it perfectly. Now, some have interpreted this to say that if you live by faith, then you will be able to live by the law. Not perfectly, but in general. But again... The law demands perfect and complete obedience. So that is not what Paul is saying here. Because the question is, what does he mean by live? What does he mean by live? The righteous shall live by faith, and the one who does the law shall live by the law. Does he mean something like, this is my rule of life? This is my moral code? This is what I live by? No, that's not what he means. In Leviticus, when the Lord said, if a person does them, that is the law, he shall live by them, the Lord was saying, he shall live if he obeys, and he shall die if he disobeys. And in the original context, The one who does them shall live by them was referring to living long in the earthly promised land. It's similar to the uh, fifth commandment, the first commandment with a promise. Honor your parents that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. Obedience to the whole law was necessary not to be saved, but to secure the earthly promised land of Israel. Sacrifices weren't enough to secure the earthly promised land. So let us fast forward to Paul. What does Paul mean? By the one who does them shall live by them. Is he speaking about living in the earthly promised land? Is he speaking about living in the Middle East somewhere? No. He is using it to say, The one who does them shall live eternally by them. Do the law, and you will live forever. You'll be saved by doing the law. If you obey the law according to God's standards, you will secure your heavenly promised land. He is talking about eternal life here, not a moral code. So this helps us to answer what were the Galatians trying to accomplish by relying on the works of the law. They were seeking eternal life in the law. They were seeking to be saved by obedience to the law. Paul says, go ahead. Go ahead. If you can keep the law perfectly, then you will secure your spot in heaven. But there is one catch. No one does the law. Listen to Jay Gresham Machen as he comments on this text. He says, these words, he who has done them shall live by them. Paul means to say, describe the nature of the law. It requires doing something. But faith is the opposite of doing. So when the scripture says that a man is justified by faith, That involves saying that he is not justified by anything that he does. There are two conceivable ways of salvation. One way is to keep the law perfectly, to do the things which the law requires. No mere man since the fall has accomplished that. The other way is to receive something, to receive something that is freely given by God's grace. That way is followed when a man has faith, but you cannot possibly mingle the two you might conceivably be saved by works or you might be saved by faith, but you cannot be saved by both. It is either or here, not both and. But which shall it be, works or faith? The scripture gives the answer. The scripture says it is faith. Therefore, it is not works. We can't secure eternal life by obedience to the law. It is only by faith in Christ that we enter into our eternal, heavenly, promised land. And get this, all believers have been saved this way throughout all the centuries. The Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith in the promised Messiah as they trusted in the temple sacrifices. Even though those sacrifices weren't enough to secure the earthly promised land, the sacrifices pointed forward to this one promised Messiah's sacrifice, which would secure the heavenly promised land. One example is how Moses did not enter the earthly promised land because of his own rebellion. Does that mean that Moses was not saved by grace? No. He showed up at the transfiguration thousands of years later. He was saved not by obedience to the law, but by grace. As believers, do we seek to obey the law? Of course we do. But it is out of gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. We're not trying to earn salvation. And what did he do for us? Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Everyone is under this curse, not not just the Jews, All are cursed under the law because all have transgressed the law. And how did he redeem us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us. This is where he quotes the third Old Testament text from Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. And it speaks of a punishment that was reserved for a sinner who committed a crime punishable by death. He is to be hanged on a tree and he is to be buried that same day. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ did what we could never do for ourselves. He obeyed the law completely and perfectly on our behalf. And on top of that, he took on the curse that we deserve and became a curse for us. A cursed man hanging on a tree, hanging on the cross, all for us. This is the doctrine of the atonement, where someone makes reparation for someone else. And when he made this atonement, all of our sins were removed from our account and placed on him on the cross. And Paul says all this to say, this is the only way to be redeemed. You're either cursed under the law or you place your faith in the one who was cursed for you. You cannot secure your eternal life in the kingdom of God by obedience to the law. We can only be saved by faith, by believing in the promises of God in Christ Jesus as they are given to us. Because remember, Israel failed to secure the promised land. They were exiled twice Because of disobedience. The earthly promised land of Israel was pointing forward to the heavenly Israel or the New Jerusalem. Israel as a people was pointing forward to true Israel, who is Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law for us and secured our promised land in heaven through the cross. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So you have two choices. You're either of faith, you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved from the judgment that awaits you, or you seek to obey the law in order to be saved. But remember, the law requires complete and perfect obedience in every point. There is no wiggle room. No room for any mistakes whatsoever. And that's the problem. Sin contaminates and corrupts every part of us as humans. So Paul is saying it is impossible to receive eternal life by obeying the law. It is impossible to be saved because you're a good person. There is no good person. No one is good. If you rely on the works of the law, you will die eternally. This is what he is saying. So how do you receive eternal life? How shall you live? Eternally. Thirdly, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. What is faith? We're going to hear this over and over again throughout this series. But faith, as it is defined in our catechism, is receiving and resting in the promises of God in Christ. Paul uh, does not quote another Old Testament text, but he refers to an Old Testament promise in verse 14. This promise is scattered throughout the Old Testament. He told us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here he is referring to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Right after the Lord scattered the nations at the Tower of Babel. The promise was that he would bless Abraham, and in Abraham, all the families of the earth, including the Gentiles, the nations he just scattered, all those nations in Abraham will be blessed. Have you ever noticed that contrast between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12? Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel, which is a picture of, of salvation by works. Man trying to reach the heavens without God. This is man's ways, right? And then you have Genesis 12, where the Lord promised that he would bless all the nations that he just scattered in Abraham, his way. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, man's way of salvation, saving themselves and exalting themselves, In Genesis 12, salvation by God's promises. There will be a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That's what the promise was. And what God was saying is that it would be fulfilled someday in the offspring of Abraham. Who was this offspring? Jesus Christ. And it would be by the Holy Spirit. We see this in the various prophecies about the Lord pouring out His Spirit on all flesh in Joel 28, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44, and Ezekiel 39. Then this promise of blessing is finally fulfilled in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out on both Jew and Gentile, all the nations. And this coming of the promised Spirit marks the coming of the kingdom of God and the reversal of the kingdom of man, the Tower of Babel. And the only way you can enter this kingdom is to receive the Spirit through faith. At Pentecost, they didn't do anything to receive the Spirit, but believed in the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul said, for the letter kills, the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from bondage of the law, freedom from the reign of sin, because it is the spirit that applies the redemption which Christ accomplished to us. So what we see in this text this morning is the importance of faith in the Christian life. Paul has mentioned faith 15 times so far in this letter and nine times in this chapter alone, because Without faith, it is not only impossible to please God, but also it is impossible to be saved. And faith itself is a gift of God by the working of the Holy Spirit, not a result of works, so that no one may boast in the sight of God. Many people ask, well, how do I know I have faith? How do I know I received the Holy Spirit? Well, ask yourself, who are you trusting in? Who are you relying on? Who do you look to for your salvation? Who do you believe in? Measure yourself against Paul's contrast here. The contrast between the cursed, those who rely on the works of the law, their own obedience, versus the righteous, who through faith trust in the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Now others will ask, well, what happens to obedience? Well, our obedience is the fruit of faith, as our confession states that we confessed this morning. The Lord even promises in Ezekiel 36 that he will pour out his spirit on us and he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Remember, when the Lord gave the law, He gave the law to Israel after he delivered them out of Egypt. After he had saved them. Our obedience is out of gratefulness to God for our salvation. We obey because we love God and we're in a loving relationship, a loving fellowship with God not because we're trying to earn our our salvation or earn anything from God's hands. Our obedience is evidence of the Spirit's presence, evidence of faith. But we don't receive life by obedience to the law. We live by the work of the Holy Spirit, granting us faith in Jesus Christ, faith that we have been forgiven, faith that the Lord will build us up and work good fruits and obedience within us. We need to get this right. Because if we get it wrong, we'll get the whole Christian life wrong. Because the Christian life is a life of freedom in the spirit. Not a life of bondage to a checklist of do's and don'ts. It is a life of living fellowship with God. Is that the kind of life you're living? A life in the liberty of the spirit's presence. So my instruction to all sinners is to look to Christ for your salvation, not your works. Don't try to earn your salvation. You know you're trying to earn it when you ask questions. And one of these questions is a question that I had to answer to someone close to me on her deathbed. How many sins does he forgive before he casts me out? My reply was 70 times 7. All your sins are forgiven in Christ. Or we ask, have I done enough to get into heaven? No. You haven't, and you never will. But Christ has done enough for you. Instead, receive and rest in Christ's finished work. Trust in Him alone for your salvation and the truth that he has redeemed you from the curse of the law, the curse that you deserve by becoming a curse for you on the cross. And rejoice today in such a sure salvation that does not depend on human merits, but only the merits of Christ alone and by the grace of God. Amen.